All right, everyone in Philippians 3. <clears throat> came across an interesting story that uh, really caught my attention about a certain tribe in Africa who elects a king every seven years. I'm curious, those of you from Africa, have you heard about this tribe? You heard about this tribe who elects a king every seven years? Uh, one of the odd things about this story, though, is after the seven years it kills that king, the tribe kills the king, and then elects a new king every seven years. And you might ask, well, who in the world would want that job, knowing that after the seven years they're going to be killed? Well, <clears throat> here's the catch. All right, here's the catch. For that seven-year period of time, the king is provided with every luxury that is known to their way of living. Uh, and during those years, his authority is absolute, even down to the power of life and death itself. For that seven years, he rules supreme. Uh, he, is, he is honored. He is given all of the possessions and more that he would possibly need. But at the end of that seven years, he dies. Every member of the tribe is aware of this, of course. It's, it's a very long-standing custom. Uh, it's interesting, though, that for I don't know how long they've been doing this, they've never had anyone not put their hand up as a willing applicant. They always have willing applicants every seven years who want to be the next king, even though they know the end result will be death. And so for seven years of luxury and power, men are willing to sacrifice everything. Sadly, though, that reminds me that in our way of life, there's a lot of people who are willing to be bankrupt through all eternity if they could just have their millions in this life. But praise God, it doesn't have to be that way. And in Philippians chapter 3, we have what is really an autobiography from a man who was not willing to, to uh, just live for the here and now. We we see a man who's going through, if you will, an identity crisis. And he was going through that identity crisis until he was on the road to Damascus. Of course, I'm talking about a man who was named Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. Paul was having an identity crisis, living for all of these earthly credentials, until he saw the risen Christ and his life dramatically changed. In my opinion, this is one of the most dramatic and compelling salvation testimonies in all of the Bible. It, it is the story of the Apostle Paul's testimony. And, and what we're going to look at here in Philippians 3, we're going to see as uh, his, his mind changes. And it all changed because he met the risen Christ on that road to Damascus. And so with that in mind, let's read the Scriptures together. Paul's testimony in Philippians 3, we're going to start reading in verse 4. Philippians 3, verse 4. These are the words of the living God, and he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he lists several things here. For example, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul was struggling. In his mind, he had a lot of earthly credentials that he was putting great faith in. And we see Paul's testimony here can be divided into two parts. And uh, on the screen here, hopefully a little visual thing I put on the screen here might help you, because Paul's using accounting terminology in verses 7 and 8. And if you understand accounting terminology, often you might have a profit column and you might have a loss column, particularly if you have a business or even maybe in your own family home, you might uh, do this sort of thing. And so what Paul does is here in the first column, he's, he's listing those things that he once thought to be in the spiritual profit column. Things he put, he put a lot of uh, thought into, a lot of effort into, and great hope in. But in reality, Paul comes here to, at this point in his life, and he he admits that that was a fantasy. In reality, the, those, all those things I had put in the profit column actually should have been in the loss column. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to call that column the, uh, the, the religious credits that do not impress God. Paul lists these various assets, these things that he thought were impressive to God, when in reality he admits they did not impress God. And then we're going to look at the true spiritual prophet column. And these Paul calls the surpassing benefits of knowing Christ. So that's the two columns and the two areas we'll be looking at today. So let's, first of all, look at verses 5 and 6 and look at these assets that do not impress God. And by the way, as you look at these, kind of put yourself in Paul's sandals here for the moment. Put yourself in his shoes, so to speak. Because we often put, uh, put great thought, effort, and uh, money, and, and our, our faith even sometimes into things that to God are not impressive. We try to identify with things other than Christ. I found myself just not too long ago going through an identity crisis of my own that might be similar to Paul's. And Philippians 3 was, God, the Holy Spirit, used this hugely in my life. And I can't help but wonder if some of you might be going through an identity crisis. It might be putting your faith and, and, and your effort into things that do not impress God. And maybe some of these things, you, the, the shoe will fit, so to speak, for you today. 
And uh, maybe, God, I pray the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to behold wonderful things from His Word. So let's, let's think about some of these assets that do not impress God. They're mentioned in verses 5 and 6. There's a, a list of them there. Paul mentions things like circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Some of these things Paul was, was holding on to. Just like this person, I want to tell you a little story about the human fly. I don't know if you ever heard of the human fly, but several years ago there was a, a man, that was his nickname, he was called the human fly because he loved climbing these tall commercial buildings in downtown areas of, of places in the United States. One day he went to Los Angeles, California, and he was climbing a tall building like this one here. And it was announced uh, to, to the whole city because he, he loved the attention of people coming and watching him climb these tall buildings. And he was climbing up the face of a large building one day, and there was thousands of thousands of spectators. That's what all those people are down there. And they were watching him performing these seemingly impossible feats. And, and he would climb without ropes, without harnesses. And he, he didn't have any suction cups like you may have seen people when they sometimes climb these buildings. And so he was just slowly, carefully climbing up the wall of this building. And up and up he went against apparently insurmountable, insurmountable difficulties. And at last he was nearing the top of this very tall building and he, he got to a point where he was struggling to find his next handhold. And he was looking around to find this handhold, something, something that he could grip onto to, to make his next move to the top. He was looking for something firm to hold onto that would support his weight. Finally, he noticed a small brick protruding from the wall, and so he reached for that. And it was just a little bit out of his reach, so he had to kind of jump. As he, as he was reaching for this brick. And he, so he, what he decided to do was just kind of gamble everything to, to get up to that so he could finally reach the top of the wall. Well, sadly, as he, he jumped, he ended up falling to the ground and he was broken to pieces. And when they came up to the dead body, they found in his hand a spider's web. What he, evidently mistook for something that was a firm handhold was only a spider's web. What he thought would save his life actually ended his life. What he mistook for profit turned out to be loss. It's a fitting illustration for what Paul's talking about here because there there, there's this list of several things that Paul mentions in our text that he thought was profit. In reality, it was loss. It was soul damning. It was killing him if he continued to trust in it. And so in Philippians 3, Paul lists seven items here that he once put in that profit column, but now he's placing in the loss column. And by the way, Paul's not saying that they're of no value. Earthly credentials are not necessarily of no value. Instead, what he is saying, though, that they're of no value when it comes to salvation, when it comes to eternal life. These earthly credits do not save you. 
They cannot get you to heaven. They couldn't save him, and they can't save you, and they can't save anybody. So let's just kind of work our way through these quickly. First of all, notice Paul says in verse 5 that salvation is not by religious ritual. Salvation is not by religious ritual. A lot of people think that, though, don't they? They, they put their faith in their religious rituals. You know, Muslims, you know, it might be for them going to Mecca. Catholics, you know, they got to go visit all these various shrines uh, and, and see the relics and pray to, to Mary and, and go to Rome. And, you know, for, for the Eastern religions, it, you know, it's, it's spinning prayer wheels and lighting candles and, you know, all sorts of things. People have their various religious rituals. And, and Christians, even Christians have their religious rituals, whether we want to admit it or not. And so Paul begins here with something that was very important to the average Jew, which is circumcision. This was the, and it's important because it was the major issue for Judaizers. You say, who are Judaizers? Well, Judaizers are just simply these people who taught that a, a, a Christian had to be right with God. In order to be right with God, you had to perform the Mosaic law that you find in your Old Testament. Part of the Mosaic law was circumcision. And so Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, and, and that was something that was taught in the Old Testament. So they, they kind of kept this Mosaic law thing going. And Paul went through this defining rite of Judaism on the eighth day after his birth. And he put a lot of credit and profit in that. He was a Jew by birth. He followed the Jewish rituals from the very beginning. And at the proper time, as he says here, he had gone through that ceremony that what what it did was it initiated him and any other Jew into the covenant people. Remember the Israel, the Hebrews were God's covenant people, his special people. Of all peoples of the earth, God chose this little insignificant group of people to make a great nation out of. Well, Paul had long forgotten that circumcision was actually to depict just how sinful and and in need of cleansing we are. He had forgotten that. There There was a purpose to this, and most Jews had forgotten the real reason for that. Instead, he had made that particular surgery like a badge of righteousness, something that we we can parade around. Yet Paul includes here circumcision in, in his spiritual loss column. Salvation does not come by any ritual. And so, my friend, if you think that somehow God is impressed by your religious rituals that you perform... Even good things, by the way. We can include prayer and Bible reading and church attendance and you know helping poor people and loving one another in various means. We, we can put great credit in those things, but God is not impressed by those. Salvation doesn't come by those things. It doesn't come by any ceremony, whether it's a, a, a ceremony like Jewish circumcision or... Uh, we could include the Roman Catholic Mass, or we could include infant baptism. We could include believer's baptism. We could include even partaking of the Lord's Supper. This doesn't save you. None of these religious rituals save. God's not impressed by those. Yes, we should do Lord's Supper. We should be baptized. God commands us to do those things, but we don't do them 
expecting that God is going to somehow love us any more than he already does or grant us eternal life through these means. Because salvation is not by religious ritual. Number two, salvation is not through your ethnicity. My friends, notice what Paul says in verse 5. After he mentions he is circumcised on the eighth day, he says that he was of the people of Israel. His ethnicity was Israel. He was a Hebrew. So Paul was by birth a member of God's chosen people. He inherited all of those wonderful blessings as being a part of that covenant nation. He was a physical descendant of Abraham, a heritage that the Jewish people relied on for salvation. They put too much importance on that. And so just like Paul, you need to understand your racial or ethnicity is unable to save you. No standing with God is going to be gained by your birth, whatever that birth is. We, we often put great importance upon our, our birth, our, our country of birth, our ethnicity. And so whether you, you were born in New Zealand or Africa or United States or whatever that might be, God is not impressed in regards to salvation on where you were born, what country you identify with. And I'll remind you that New Zealand is not a Christian nation. United States is not a Christian nation. South Africa is not a Christian nation. There is no Christian nation. So you can't say, well, because this is my birth heritage or this is my ethnicity, well, therefore, God's going to accept me into heaven. No, it doesn't work that way. And so Paul realized the religious ritual goes into the loss column. He realized that ethnicity goes into the loss column. And number three, salvation is not based on family. Paul even knew what tribe he came from. Look at your scriptures in verse 5. He says that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. That's pretty cool because by this time in Jewish history, hardly anybody knew what their tribe was anymore. Because you remember... The northern ten tribes had been conquered by the Assyrians. And then eventually the Babylonians came in and conquered the, uh, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And they had been taken, Benjamin and Judah had been taken off into exile. And so they go off to Babylon. And then they're conquered by the Persians. And so they're in exile in Persia. And so a lot of people had intermarried and they just kind of forgot, well, what is my heritage? What is my tribe? And, and Paul's putting this his, in his uh, this so-called impressive credential category because he was of this very prominent tribe in Israel called Benjamin. You need to understand a little bit about Benjamin's history. Let me inform you if you're not aware of it. Benjamin was the younger of the two sons that was born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. He was also the last of Jacob's sons to be born, And he was the only one that was actually born in the promised land. And so when the promised land was then divided up into the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, the holy city of Jerusalem was then included in Benjamin's territory. And then, of course, Saul, who was Israel's first king, was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And then when the kingdom was split after Solomon's death, 
Only Benjamin and Judah ended up remaining loyal to the Davidic dynasty. And then after the conquering of of Judah, there was a, a man by the name of Mordecai. You can read about him in your book of Esther. He was a great leader who was used by God along with Queen Esther to save the Jews from being totally decimated and destroyed. And did you know that Mordecai was from the tribe of Benjamin? So therefore, the tribe of Benjamin was considered to be one of the most noble, if not the most noble in Israel. And so to claim that as your birthright was an incredible claim. And so by Paul's day, as I remind you, many of the Jews no longer knew what tribe they belonged to as a result of intermarrying and the exiles. All those tribal lines had just been blurred. But Paul somehow knew that he was a pure Benjaminite. But Paul's privileged status as a Benjaminite did not impress God, and he recognizes that here. So it's important for us to note that family status has nothing to do with salvation. You can't say you're a Christian and you're on your way to heaven because I was born into a Christian home or you were somehow saved or born into a Christian nation. There is no Christian nation. And you're not born a Christian. You're born an enemy of God. You must be born again. Number four. Paul also recognizes that salvation is not by tradition. Salvation doesn't come by tradition. Your identity should not come be based on your tradition. For Paul, he mentions that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews in verse 5. Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul did not personally contribute anything to earn these first three privileges that he mentions on his list. They were inherited from his parents. But interestingly enough, starting here at the fourth one, the last four things that are mentioned, these were things that he achieved himself. And so this statement is best understood as a declaration that he grew to manhood, uh, that as he grew to manhood, Paul strictly maintained his family traditional Jewish heritage. He didn't just give that up and set it aside. It was still important to him. And even though he was born in Tarsus, which, by the way, is up in Asia Minor, north of Israel, it's clear he didn't assimilate into that Greco-Roman culture like many other people did. Instead, what he did is he ended up leaving Jerusalem. He, uh, he, he did live in Tarsus, and, but he ended up uh, studying under a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. And the Bible says that Paul was zealously devoted to his Jewish heritage. In fact, he, he was probably zealous than, than most people. But yet after he sees Jesus Christ and his glory, he saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, he ended up transferring the, what he thought was profit into the loss column. So he clearly believed salvation was not by tradition. And number five, he also came to see that salvation is not by religion. Again, look in your text. Verse five. Because he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to the law, a Pharisee. Paul was one of these guys, no matter what he did, 
He pursued it with all of his heart. He was zealous. He was radical. (laughs) He was a fanatic. And before he was a Christian, he was, of course, zealous to the law, he says. He was one of those Pharisees. He, uh, and, and you have to understand, to become a Pharisee was to reach the highest level in devotion to Jewish law. This legalistic Judaism, if you will. The Pharisees were supremely devoted to the law. They were devoted to the Old Testament. They were devoted to their traditions. They had these man-made laws that would help them not break the scriptures. And so not only were they devoted to the scriptures, they were devoted to these man-made traditions as well. By the way, the origin of the Pharisees is not known for certain, but the sect probably arose during the intertestamental period. There was that, that 400 years of silence after the prophets started writing, they stopped writing and then up to the time of Jesus. And Josephus estimated, by the way, Josephus was a Jewish historian, and he estimated there was about 6,000 Pharisees. So they weren't a huge group, but they had great influence, uh, certainly among the common people. And so to be a Pharisee was to be among this elite group. So they were kind of like the religious SAS, or the religious Navy SEALs, if you will, of their day. and They were very influential, highly esteemed and respected amongst Israel. They were the ones who were supposed to interpret the law, guard the law, teach the law, and obey the law. So Paul's cherished status as a Pharisee was just one other item that was in his spiritual loss column. It was something that he had had put his identity in, but when he met Christ, he recognized it wasn't that important. Well, there's a lot of people like Paul today. We have priests today. We have monks, theological scholars. There's members of devout sects who try to achieve salvation through religion. You've probably had some knock on your door, haven't you? You've probably had some meet you on the street who try to convince you of their religion. You've probably seen some practicing their religions. But none of those things will save them unless their faith is in Jesus Christ alone. Let's look at one more. Paul mentions here that salvation is not by sincerity. Some people think, you know, it's it's all in my sincerity. If I really believe and I'm genuine about my belief, it doesn't really matter what my faith is in. Wrong. (laughs) Paul was very sincere. If you look at verse 6, he says, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was zealous. And this is just further evidence of his zeal for his Jewish heritage because he was a persecutor of the church. He thought the church was uh, this wrong thing, the wrong way. The Jews viewed zeal, by the way, as a supreme religious virtue. It was a two-sided coin. One side is love, the other hate. And so to be zealous is to love God and then to hate what offends God. But sadly, Paul's zeal caused him to hate Christ, to hate the way, to hate the Christians, to hate the church. Yes, Paul was sincere, but he was also wrong. 
And so the world is just full of these kind of people who are sincere in their religious beliefs. And, and they are quite happy. A lot of people are happy for you to believe what you believe. Just don't tell them they're wrong. Don't tell them that there's only one way. And they're going to make any effort, they're going to pay any price, sacrifice anything in their attempt to please God. But my friend, you need to recognize that religious zeal guarantees absolutely nothing. If your faith has the wrong object, you will be like the human fly. You will be grasping for something that isn't there and you will fall to your death. So religious zeal guarantees nothing. And so when Paul faced the reality of Jesus Christ, and, he, and, and Jesus says, hey, you're actually fighting against me, then he realized that his zeal was misguided. He realized that what he thought was spiritual profit was actually loss. Number seven, Paul mentions that salvation does not come from being a good person. How many people have you met who believe that if you're a good person, that you get to heaven. How often have we heard that? How often do people think that God has these huge scales, and then on this side, all your good works go, and then on the other side, all the bad works, the evil, the sin, and if the good outweighs the evil and the bad, that God's going to overlook all that bad stuff and let you into heaven. A lot of people believe that. And so they hope that's going to get them into heaven. By outward appearances, Paul was a model Jew. He lived by the Jewish law. And Paul seemingly had it all, didn't he? Yet, he looks at that stuff now and he says, it's useless in regards to salvation. And some people would say that Paul believed these items were good, but Christ was better. That is not what Paul is saying, by the way. Instead, I want you to see that Paul viewed all of these items as actually bad. In fact, Paul says they were deadly. They were soul-damning. Because these things actually deceived him into thinking he was doing right, and that he was on his way to heaven. It deceived him into thinking that he had this right standing with God, when he did not. It was a false religion, and it deceived him and damned his soul. Well, what changed his life was seeing Christ. Let's have a look what Paul says about the benefits of knowing Christ. What are the benefits of knowing Christ? By the way, my, my main idea from our text today is basically this, that without Christ, all your earthly credentials are rubbish. Without Christ, earthly credentials are rubbish. We must know Christ. So let's look at the benefits of knowing Christ then. Verse 7, by the way, sums up this dramatic change that took place in Paul's perspective when he met Christ. Because verse 7 says, it starts with the word, but, showing a contrast between his former way of thinking. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All of those treasures that were in his gain suddenly became loss. All those things that he thought was profit became rubbish. By God's grace, though, those things he wrongly imagined would actually give him eternal life, Paul replaced them with the benefits of Christ. 
It's interesting in verses six or seven and eight, there's this contrast over and over in verses seven and eight, the negative and the positive. In verse seven, notice a negative. He says, I counted as loss. In verse eight, he says, I counted everything as loss. I have suffered the loss of all things, he says. In verse eight, he says, I count them as rubbish. Some translations say dung, manure. But then in contrast to that, in verse 7, Paul says, on the other hand, for the sake of Christ. In verse 8, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Again, in verse 8, he says, that I may gain Christ. So there's this contrast, the profit and loss, the assets compared to Christ. So let's think of it as the benefits here. The first benefit that Paul mentions is knowledge of Christ. Look at verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Notice here that He declares all things to be lost in view of something that is far greater value. These earthly credentials, the things that you and I tend to put our identity in, is really not that important. Paul uses those words, I count, in verse 8. It's In the Greek, it's a present tense. just means it's a continuous action. It's continuing continuing from the past into the present and should continue on into the future. You must continually count this to be of value. The knowledge of Christ is something that is of value not only to someone who is an unbeliever, but my friend, if you are a believer, Christ must continually be counted as valuable, of, of high value, of the greatest value. Christ must be your greatest treasure above everything else. And Paul says, he, he mentions the word know in verse 8. Know there when, when he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is, it's not that word that we might use when you walk up to, to somebody and say, hey, I know, oh, I don't know. <laughs> you say, well, hey, I know about the prime minister or you might say, hey, I know about some rugby player like Richie McCaw. There's a difference between saying you know about somebody and actually saying you you personally know somebody. Yeah, I, I know a lot of facts about the prime minister and the captain of the All Blacks and other people, well-known people. I know facts about them, but I don't know them personally. Paul's not using this word no in knowing just facts about somebody. Paul's saying, I personally know Jesus. I've seen Him. I've been taught by Him. So that word knowing is an experiential knowledge, and it's coming from personal involvement. And what's the point, you say? Well, the knowledge of Christ that Paul's describing here is far more than just a mere intellectual knowledge about facts about Him. Salvation is something that's personal. Salvation, you have, you hope you understand, is not religion. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
for the privilege of knowing Christ, Paul gladly here says, I suffer the loss of all things. And and notice Paul goes as far as to say, I'm counting those things as rubbish. (laughs) The Greek word for rubbish is an interesting word. It's a very strong word that could be translated manure or waste. Therefore, some translations might use the word dung. Some might actually use the word manure. I don't know. I didn't look at all translations. But the idea is it's it's something that, that we don't want. <laughs> we, we might tend to ignore it, uh, throw it away, put it in a pile somewhere. And you say, well, what's the point? Well, here's the point that Paul's making, that all efforts to obtain salvation through our human achievements is vain. It's empty. It's worthless. And the first benefit is actually knowing Christ. It's the only way to heaven. It's the only hope that you and I have. The second benefit that Paul mentions in verse 9 is what he calls righteousness. And in the word righteousness, notice there's the word right. So if you're not familiar with that word righteousness, the you say, well, what is righteousness? It's just a right standing with God. It's a right standing with God where, where God accepts you. You are accepted by Him because of the work of Christ, by the way. And so, my friends, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the good news, that a repentant sinner recognizes you have sinned against the holy God and you need Christ's righteousness. How do you get that? It's by faith. It's not through good works. By faith, you accept the work of Christ on your behalf and then Christ right standing with God, is imputed to you, if you will. He gives you His righteousness. And Paul had spent all of his adult life trying to obtain this right standing, this righteousness with God, which was not possible on his own. He did it by trying to keep the Mosaic Law, the Old Testament Law, and in the end he found it was just soul damning. That righteousness of self-effort, all these external morality stuff, the religious rituals, the, the moral works, the good works, was crushing him. It was killing him. Although Paul did his best, he understood that he was actually falling short of God's standard. He said it this way in Romans, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what was... That's what was happening to him. All these earthly credentials, these things that you and I as well, we tend to identify with and put great hope in, was crushing him. Let me illustrate it this way. Hopefully you all know what this is. How many of you have played Monopoly? I'm curious. (laughs) You ever played Monopoly or, or some other game that might use the very colorful paper, which isn't real, by the way, of course. It's not real. And now, if I was to walk up to you and I, and I was to say, here, uh, would you like $10,000? Go buy something. Would you, would you take it? Would any of you actually take this and go to some store and, and hand that and say, well, um, I would like to buy $10,000 worth of whatever? Would you, would you? Would any of you seriously take me for real? Probably not. And you'll see a picture of Monopoly on the screen, of course. A lot of people are like, Paul, we 
tend to look to our human righteousness. The accumulation of human righteousness is a lot like playing Monopoly. The game, of course, has very colorful money. And if you were like me as a child, you enjoyed playing it. It's a, it's a fun game to play, I think, anyway. But only someone who is a fool is going to take the money, this play money, paper money, and, and try and go and buy something with it. Something for real, anyway. Only a fool is going to do that. A different kind of currency is used in the real world. Monopoly money is not real money, of course. And it's the same in, in the spiritual life. There are people who think they can collect all of these earthly assets, these earthly credentials, and think that God is somehow going to be impressed with those things, when in reality all you're doing is just collecting human righteousness. And God tells us that we must leave the play currency, the fake currency, like monopoly money, and we have to deal in reality, which is Christ's righteousness. And why is that? Well, our goodness has no value in heaven. Our goodness has no value at all in heaven. And God's not impressed with it. And if you notice in verse 9, Paul exchanged his self-righteousness for true righteousness. He exchanged his so-called right standing with the right standing with God that only comes through Jesus. And it, it comes through faith in Christ. You notice that? It comes from God on the basis of faith. By the way, faith is a misunderstood word, so let me give you a good definition. It's on the screen. Quote, Faith is the confident, continuous confession of total dependence on and trust in Jesus Christ for the necessary requirements to enter God's kingdom. It involves more than mere intellectual assent to the truth of the gospel. Saving faith includes trust in Jesus Christ and surrender to His Lordship. End quote. So the second benefit of knowing Christ was righteousness, this right standing with God that only comes through faith in Christ. Number three, the third benefit that Paul mentions in verse 10 is power. Power, he mentions that I may know Him, that's Jesus, and the power of His resurrection. Paul didn't want to know about Jesus. He didn't want just some mere knowledge, intellectual truth about Him. This saving knowledge became the basis of Paul's lifelong pursuit of, of, of something deeper. He wanted this deep knowledge of Jesus. That's amazing coming from somebody who's actually seen Jesus, who was taught by Jesus. Specifically, Paul longed to experience the power of his resurrection, he says. That's interesting. Because Paul recognized there was no power in the law. There was no power in being a Pharisee. There was no power in being of the tribe of Benjamin. There was no power in being an Israelite. He also knew that he had been given the Holy Spirit. He had the spiritual power that raised Jesus from the dead. <laughs> and he mentions that in other portions of Scripture. By the way, what is the greatest display of Christ's power? It's His resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ conquered death and Satan. Rising from the dead revealed Jesus' absolute power over everything physical as well as spiritual. 
And he was able to say, I have all authority over heaven and earth. And so Paul experienced Christ's resurrection power in two ways, by the way. Number one, it was the power that saved him. Paul says so in Romans chapter 6. It's on the screen. He wrote about the reality of Christ's resurrection power here. In verse 4, he says, We were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do you see the connection there? There's a connection between Christ's resurrection power and this power that's available to us. Because Christ arose from the grave, one day you and I know we can, t- we can too. And we have that, that power available to us to live the Christian life. Paul wanted that power. And, and by the way, that's the second point. Christ's resurrection power sanctified him. It didn't just save him, but sanctified him. Enabled him, if you will, to defeat temptation and sin and live a holy life to be able to travel the known world and boldly proclaim the gospel wherever he went to establish churches. He didn't do that in his own strength. That was because of Christ's power in him. And he knew that. The fourth benefit is fellowship with Jesus Christ. Fellowship with Jesus Christ in verse 10. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So Paul speaks specifically of this fellowship of his sufferings. Now what in the world is he talking about? Well, here's the answer, my friends. He's talking about this deep partnership, if you will. A communion with Christ that only comes when you go through suffering. And so when he met Christ, Paul gained a companion that was with him always. Jesus said, I am always with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And so everywhere, every prison Paul was in, Jesus was there with him. When he was shipwrecked, Jesus was with him. Every time Paul was stoned almost to death, Jesus was with him. Every time Paul was beaten, Jesus was with him, sharing in his sufferings. Every time Paul had to sleep outside and was cold and hungry, Jesus was with him. Jesus endured those times with him. And so one who endured far more intense persecution and suffering than anybody else who has ever lived did it, by the way, totally undeserving of those things, was there with Paul. Paul understood the fellowship with Jesus Christ. And i got a question for you. Think about this. When are your deepest moments of spiritual fellowship with Christ? Is it during the good times in your life and when you don't seem to have any problems and you, you, all your relationships are going well and you got plenty of money, at least enough to meet your needs and life is going well? Is, is that when you have the deepest fellowship with Christ? Not likely. Not, my, not in my case anyway. Probably not in yours. More than likely, it's during those times of suffering. When you have hard times in your life. And the suffering, what it does is it drives a true believer to Christ. 
looking to Christ and you recognize, all I have is Christ. (laughs) He is my greatest treasure. And that's a good thing, because in Christ we find a merciful high priest. We find one who is a faithful friend who knows our pain, feels our pain, is a sympathetic companion who has faced the trials you and I faced. He understands our temptations. In fact, he says so in Hebrews 4. Look at this. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Christ is uniquely qualified then to help us in our weaknesses and in our infirmities. And of course, that truth must have been very comforting to Paul, because he, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, For the sake of Christ, I am content. Notice what he's content with. <laughs> this doesn't normally cross our lips, but Paul says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see why he's content? Because Christ shows himself strong through someone's weakness. Number five, the fifth benefit is glory. This is the last one, by the way. Paul mentions the fifth benefit is Glory. Well, look how he words it in verse 11. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's talking about glorification. The supreme benefit that Paul obtained when he met Christ is something that is guaranteed for every believer in the future. This future resurrection. And Paul knew that he would share in Christ's glory. Just as Christ was resurrected, he was the first fruits, so too we can share in Christ's resurrection. Paul knew that. He talks of it in several places in Scripture, not only here, but others. And by the way, notice the phrase in verse 11, the resurrection of the dead. You might ask, well, when will believers attain that resurrection? The answer is the rapture. You will attain that resurrection in the rapture. Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 15. I put it on the screen here for you. Where Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Something you don't understand, but will be revealed to you. And he says about the rapture, he says, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. My friends, do you long for that day? Are you looking, hoping, waiting for that day when Christ comes and your mortal body that is, even now as we speak, wasting away? Some of you I can see are having a hard time staying awake. That's your mortal body. You're struggling. You're fighting it. Some of you might be starting to get hungry. That's all part of your mortal body. Some of your eyesights, you know, some of you are wearing glasses. That's your mortal body revealing itself. Some of us are turning gray. That's, again, part of our mortal body. You know, we're fighting this mortal body constantly, aren't we? But there's coming a day when that mortal body will be gone, 
and you will be imperishable. You won't fight sleepness, hunger, pain, or anything else like that. Paul recognized that is far better than all of these earthly credentials that I, I had put my hope and trust in. So what do believers gain by their union with Christ? Let me just quickly review these for you. Number one, the first benefit is the knowledge of Christ. He is better than anything. Number two, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to all believers through justification by faith alone. Number three, a true believer can gain the power of Christ for their sanctification. You can be set free from your sin. And number four, there is some special participation when you and I suffer for the sake of Christ. There is a communion with Christ that those who suffer understand. And number five, there is a sharing in Christ's glory when we will one day be glorified. And so, it's no wonder then, if you look at these benefits that far outweigh anything on this earth, it's no wonder Paul gladly exchanges those things. He says, they're rubbish. (laughs) Wow, they used to be really important to me, but you know what? I've seen Christ. There's something way better. And so, he's exchanged the religious credits that were in his loss column for something that was far surpassing the benefits of knowing Christ. And so, my friend, everyone of us stands at a crossroads. Everybody at some point in your life stands at a crossroads. Either you can continue to cling and hold on to your assets that you think are awesome, or you can set them aside, forsake them, smell them. They're just a bunch of rubbish, dung, waste, manure. See them as Christ sees them and forsake those assets in favor of something far better. And it's a person, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. So my friend, if you haven't done already, I strongly urge you. I plead with you. I'm willing to get on my hands and knees to plead with you if I have to. That you find your identity in Christ. You find your salvation in Christ. You find your purpose for living in Christ. You find your treasure in Christ alone and give up anything and everything else to gain Christ. That's what I urge you to do. That's what I plead with you to do. And I pray that God would open your eyes to see Christ.